my wife made mention of the concern that one of these Advent candles might light this auditorium on fire, so I'm going to fix that and get us in, in good standing here. Um, we'll see how this morning goes. I have, I have no idea. Um, oh, no. Um, all right, let's just pray that the auditorium doesn't catch fire by the end of, of all of this, maybe spiritually, but not, you know, physically. Um, I've learned over the course of December, so I mentioned last Sunday that I've been getting over some sort of sickness throughout the, the course of the month of December, which has taken my voice away, and yet I just can't help myself. And so I found that my routine is just to sing these songs as loudly as humanly possible and then just put my mouth underneath the water cooler and just drink fully and then come up here and preach. So we'll see how this goes. Um, before we dive into the scriptures this morning, I made mention of this last week. I'll make mention one more time in 2019. Around this time of year, um, some of us come into um, Christmas bonuses, a little bit of something extra. We become maybe a little bit more charitable than we typically tend to be other parts of the year, even the most charitable ones of us. And so I wanted to make mention of an opportunity that you can get on board with if, if this uh, so intrigues you. Um, I think we may have a slide for this. Um, our network, the Acts 29 network that we're a part of is... Uh, launching this year and moving into next year uh, an initiative, a church planting initiative called the Thousand In for a Thousand campaign. It's basically a call to a thousand people to give a thousand dollars so that we can then put a million dollars toward church planting in three different kinds of contexts. One, uh, inner city, uh, impoverished urban areas where um, church plants and, and planter pastors are likely not going to see the church sustained from within by way of the tithes and offerings of those who are a part of those churches just on the basis of the income levels of many uh, who are a part of those churches. Um, secondly, uh, rural areas that are just as impoverished but are on the outskirts of, of many of those cities throughout the world. Um, some of the, the farmlands of the world that have low populations but still desperately need to hear the gospel uh, again, that won't be sustained by the tithes and offerings of the churches, likely. Uh, and then lastly, uh, highly uh, Muslim context is uh, one of the newest initiatives of our network uh, where planter pastors are going into areas where it's highly likely that it will take several years just to see half a dozen converts, as you can imagine what it would be like um, to convert from one religion to another in the midst of all the pressures to stay with the religion that you've known your entire life. And so our, our network is looking to take the gospel into all three of those kinds of contexts. And um, we're looking to onboard as many people as we can to help support that initiative. So if that's something that interests you, um, you can uh, look into the bulletin this morning. I believe the website's there. There may even be a QR code that you can use the, the, phone, uh, the, the camera app on your phone to scan and it'll take you right to the website and you can onboard with that initiative and be a part of seeing the gospel go forth in many different ways. That said, uh, this morning marks the, the fourth Sunday of the season of Advent. As I mentioned early in this series, the word Advent means coming or arrival. And so the season of Advent is simply the focusing of our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world, the, the joyful celebration of his first coming and, and the eager longing for and expectation of his second coming. It's a season to rejoice at the birth of the Savior and the humble trappings of a smelly stable, the condescension of the eternal God, as I've said before, stooping down in order to raise us up out of our hopeless state. But it's also a season, and we'll talk about this in, in great detail this morning, to yearn. It's a season to acknowledge that all is not right in the world, as many of you are well aware. It's a season to lament the brokenness of the world and of ourselves. It's a season to 
reflect on God's promises to be fulfilled in the second coming, the second advent of Jesus. In the hopes of having our hearts awaken yet again to the beauty and wonder of the Christmas story, we spent the better part of December in a sermon series entitled Unwrapping Christmas, the goal of which has been to dive into some of the lesser known passages associated with the Christmas story in the hopes that, that God might break in and break through. Christmas story uh, is one that many of us are incredibly familiar with, and yet there are aspects of the story that are hidden underneath the wrapping, so to speak. The question that begs to be answered with a series like this is, 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 is it possible that, that God could really awaken our hearts yet again to the, the beauty and wonder of the story of Jesus coming into the world? Not only do I believe that he can do it, I believe he has done it. I've heard many of your responses to some of the, the messages connected to this series up to this point as God has awakened many of your hearts. And I believe that he'll do it again this very morning and he'll do it on Tuesday night when we gather in this place all over again on Christmas Eve. With that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in verses 22 through 35 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to use that Bible during your time with us this morning. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's maybe a little more difficult to track with, uh, you can have that as our Christmas gift to you. Let me just go ahead and pray for us, and uh, we'll jump in and we'll get going this morning. God, this just might be the most impactful message in this series as we dive into the part of the Christmas story that has to do with unmet expectations. It has to do with the experience of grief and sorrow in this broken, fallen world, which many of us are all too familiar with this time of year. And so I pray that you would console many in this room this morning, that you would comfort many in this room this morning in the midst of their own unmet expectations, in the midst of their own grief and sorrow. Thank you, God, that you are big enough to handle each and every tear that we shed. I pray that we would get a feeling sense of that truth this morning as we open up your word together. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you move and work in our minds and hearts this morning. Awaken us yet again to the wonder of Christmas. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and King, I pray. Amen. So over the course of the, the first three weeks of this series, if you were around, you may recall we've taken a look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the, the wonder of the Christmas story deeply embedded in the begats of the Bible, you might say. We've considered the coming of Jesus from the perspective of Herod, reminding us that the Christmas story is not just a story of a coming savior, but a coming king. And we sat last week with the lyrics of Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, the pronouncement of God's glorious grace in rescuing and purposing the lives of the humble. This morning, we're back in Luke's gospel account for a second week in a row. The first two chapters of the book of Luke, many of us have read them numerous times. They present us with some of the most familiar passages associated with the Christmas story. You have the angel Gabriel's encounter with the Virgin Mary, the no vacancy sign at the Bethlehem Inn, the encounter between the shepherds and the angels. What we don't hear quite as much of this time of year is the passage having to do with Jesus's dedication at the temple. If you pick up in Luke chapter two, verse 22, it says this, 
And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Since the days of the Passover, going back to the Old Testament story of Israel, God had established that the life of any Jewish firstborn son belonged to him. And it was to be dedicated to him in the temple. An act of consecration to the service of God, which we know in reading the the ministry and life of Jesus would eventually lead him to a splintered wooden cross. Not only that, the mother of the newborn child had to go through a purification process considered ceremonially unclean on the basis of the blood associated with childbirth. Part of that purification process involved the offering of, of both a lamb and then a pigeon or a turtle dove. Unless you were poor, in which case a concession was made allowing the mother to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. So that what Luke tells us here is that Mary and Joseph are not only pious, as evidenced by their adhering to the law of Moses, but they're also poor. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Not a baby wrapped in fine linens lying in the king's palace, a baby in humble trappings and lying among the feeding troughs of Bethlehem. It's a declaration that God did not come to rescue those who think they have it all together. He came for the poor in spirit. In Mary's words, going back to last week, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Right around the time that all of this is happening, right around the time that the newborn Jesus is being brought to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord, we're told in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We don't don't know much about Simeon. Details of his life are relatively unknown We simply know that he was righteous and devout. We know that he waited expectantly for God to fulfill his promise in the coming of the Messiah. And we also know that the Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would see Jesus before he saw death. Can you imagine? He goes on to say in verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. What we call the miracle of illumination, the seeing and savoring of Jesus Christ. That for some of us in this place, in this morning, that's what we're most desperate for. Eyes to see like Simeon, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Simeon bursts into a song of praise, just like Mary going back to last week, now able to die in peace. Having not only seen, but having held God's salvation in his very arms. And it's It's not a peace, Simeon's peace, that rests on the notion that things will go swimmingly. 
Simeon knows that Jesus is going to face opposition, that some in Israel will fall on his account, verse 34. It's a peace, Simeon's peace, that rests in the truth that God is a promise keeper. Verse 29, according to your word, he says. That he knows that, that God's redemptive purposes will overcome all opposing forces. The redemption of both Jew and Gentile, verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We read it last week in the lighting of the Advent candles. Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That the one born king of the Jews has come to bring glory to Israel, make no mistake about it, but it's a work of redemption that's going to overflow the banks of that river, flooding the nations with the revelation of God's glory and grace in Jesus Christ. And again, it's a promise that, that rests on the notion that things aren't going to go swimmingly. In fact, it's Israel, as we read the story of Jesus's life and ministry, who would reject the Messiah, opening the door for the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles, which would then open the door for the salvation of the Jews. You can read all about that in Romans chapters nine through 11. We don't have time for it this morning. But coming back to this morning's passage, Simeon predicts Israel's rejection of Jesus. Look at verse 33, it says this, and his father and his mother, Jesus' father and mother, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What, what Simeon's saying here, similar to what we see elsewhere in scripture, 1 Peter 2.8, Jesus, the stone of stumbling over whom many will fall. Romans 9.32, Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ. That the baby in the manger is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, verse 34, revealing the thoughts from many hearts, verse 35. Which isn't that exactly what we saw Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount series? For the arrogant and proud, judgment. For the humble and lowly in heart, salvation. The light has come into the world, John 3, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That what Simeon is saying is, is that there's, in some sense, an offensiveness to Jesus himself, which means that as we follow him, we can expect some level of opposition, perhaps even hostility. In the words of one commentator that I read this past week, the manger at Christmas means that if you live like Jesus, there won't be room for you in a lot of inns. That in following in the footsteps of Jesus, the Christian will know the joys of peacemaking and the sorrows of opposition. But notice that in this morning's passage, the coming of Jesus doesn't just cause conflict among people, but also conflict within people. If we skimmed quickly over the words in parentheses, we'd miss it, just like skimming over the genealogy in Matthew chapter one. Verse 35, Simeon says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon's talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus there. We know that because verse 34 says, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. 
You might ask, well, what kind of sword might it be that would pierce through Mary's own soul in light of the coming Messiah? Maybe it was the sword of confusion, which we see in Mark chapter 3. Jesus' family, including Mary, attempting to seize him, not fully understanding his ministry, even seeking to obstruct it at times. Maybe it was the sword of grief, which we see in John chapter 19, as Mary looked up to the cross and beheld her dying son, questions filling her mind as to how this could possibly be the true path to glory. So that I would ask you this morning, anyone come into this place this morning filled with confusion, wondering if God really knows what he's doing in the wake of unmet expectations? How about grief? The agony that comes in being surrounded by the very things that make this world sad in its brokenness and fallenness. We know that this time of year, the highs can be incredibly high and the lows can be incredibly low. Before the service, as we were praying, I stopped for a minute just to thank God for the rain because it's a simple reminder of unmet expectations. Many of us getting out of our cars, feeling those raindrops hitting our heads going, I wish it was sunny today. On the one hand, the story of Christmas is the story of a sword removed. When Adam and Eve were exiled from God's garden sanctuary of Eden, going back to the very beginning, Genesis 3, we're told that a cherubim was placed with a sword in hand to keep them out of the garden. Their sin separating them from the very presence of God. Donald McLeod in his book, Christ Crucified, says it this way. He says, Eden was the place where God walked, where humans lived in harmony with their maker, with each other and with their environment, and where eternal life was within their grasp. Now, their situation has changed irrevocably. Eden is behind them, and at the gate stands a flaming sword. The divine holiness, the flaming anger of God, now stands between mankind and paradise. Humanly speaking, the way back to eternal life is closed, and closed not by mankind's no to God, but by God's no to mankind. Anyone who dares to go back, he says, must reckon with the flaming holiness of offended deity. Like who in the world is sufficient for the task of removing that sword? One of my favorite movies as a kid was The Sword and the Stone, the Disney animated version of the legend of how King Arthur became king. If you don't know the story, you should really go rent that movie. I think it's on Disney+. Plus. As the story goes... The king of England dies with no apparent heir to the throne at a time when the country lies under threat of being ravaged by war and, and there appears a sword in the middle of the town square lodged inside an anvil the size of a large rock and engraved on the top of the blade are these words. Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king born of England. And of course, as the story goes, the, the bravest and strongest of knights are unable to remove the sword from the stone because none of them were destined to remove it. It wasn't theirs to remove. Only a scrawny kid by the name of Arthur has the power to remove the sword because he was destined to do so. The long lost heir to the throne of England. The gospel declares that there's a greater sword that none of us can remove. The flaming sword that stands between us and paradise, our sin separating us from the very presence of God. But the gospel also declares that there's a king 
far greater than Arthur, who was destined to remove that flaming sword, to use that imagery in the garden. It's Jesus who, bearing our sins, came under the flaming sword of God's judgment, opening the way back to paradise and ultimately the way back to a restored relationship with the living God. We sing it this time of year. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. I would ask this morning, have you been reconciled to God through the sword-removing work of Jesus Christ? Christmas, I've said this before, it's an indictment before it's a joy. We're meant to feel our desperate need for a savior. But Christmas is also the glorious declaration that we can stop trying to impress God, that God has done what man can never do. I mean, on the one hand, the story of Christmas is undoubtedly the story of a sword removed. On the other hand, the story of Christmas is the story of a sword piercing through our soul like Mary's, teaching us to, to trust God in the midst of unmet expectations, teaching us to look to God amidst the waves of grief and sorrow. We're told going back to verse 25 that Simeon was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. If you look back through the story of the Old Testament, having suffered greatly for centuries, Israel was a people in desperate need of comfort and consolation, the kind of comfort that could only come in the coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Again, I would ask, have you been pierced by the sword of unmet expectations like Israel all those years? Have you been pierced by the sword of grief and sorrow like Mary as she stood at the foot of the cross and beheld her son? We don't oftentimes feel comfortable talking about these things this time of year, but they're part of the story of Christmas too. The story of Christmas is the story not only of a God who reconciles, but a God who consoles, a God big enough to handle our tears, even at Christmas time, especially at Christmas time. A God who promises to someday wipe away sadness forever and overwhelm us with his comfort for all eternity. Hallelujah and amen. And there will be no December 26 to follow it. No tree that will have to come down in the new heaven and earth. Eternal, unending bliss in the presence of our all-comforting Savior and King where every soul-piercing scar that you've ever experienced in this life will have prepared you for an eternal weight of glory. Hallelujah. We're gonna continue to worship this comforting Savior and King this morning. We do it in a number of ways coming out of the sermon each and every week in this place. We do th so through our collective song as the church. We sang those words just a moment ago, tidings of comfort and joy, the both and of the Christmas story. Just invite you as we sing this morning to pause for a moment and, and to consider the, the wonder of Christmas that this is a God who not only reconciles, but he does console his people. If you come into this place bringing sadness and brokenness in light of some of the experiences of life right now in this season for you or those that you love who surround you, just pause for a moment. It's appropriate to shed some tears, even this time of year, it really is. Maybe we need to do that and, and sit 
with this God who consoles in the midst of those tears.